Welcome to the Reclaim Church Podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Whether you're a part of our Reclaim Church family or just tuning in for the first time, we would love to connect with you on Instagram at Reclaim Church or at our website at reclaimed-church.com. We hope this word encourages and inspires you today. Let's dive in. So if you were here last week, we started a series on the book of Titus, all right? Titus is a small three-chapter book in the New Testament. It's very similar to 1 and 2 Timothy because Paul is writing to a beloved and trustworthy co-worker in both letters. So Titus was not written by Titus. It was a letter to Paul. Same thing with 1 and 2 Timothy, a letter to Timothy. So obviously, Timothy is in Ephesus, and here we're going to learn a little bit more about where Titus is. So last week, we did verses 1 through 4. We're doing a verse-by-verse study. This week, we're doing verses 5 through 9. Again, the goal is we want you guys to understand Scripture well. We want you guys to know truth, because when you encounter false truth, you're not going to be able to determine whether or not it's true or false, because we have to make sure that we understand truth. So it's not about what I say, even though I'm really exciting to listen to. It's all about what does Scripture say, all right? So we want to make sure, that was a joke, just in case you're new, that was a joke. So we want to make sure that we follow along with Scripture and that we weigh what I'm saying to what Scripture is saying. Because a lot of preaching is interpretation, and hopefully it helps you understand Scripture better. That's the point of a teacher, is to help maybe explain some cultural background or to give you some insight on theology or doctrine. But at the end of the day, you want to make sure that what I'm saying lines up with what Scripture is saying. Sound good? All right, sweet. So I think we'll start with verse five and just kind of go from there. And the goal is that we're going to have a better understanding of Scripture after today. That's kind of our goal, because the better we understand Scripture, the better we understand the book, the better we're going to understand the author of the book. All right? That's the goal, is to know the author is why we study the book. Even though the book wasn't written by God, it was inspired by God. So God is, it is the inspired word of God written down by his apostles and things like that. Sound good? All right. So verse five, here we go. Starts out, I left you on the island of Crete. So again, this is a letter to Titus, but it was expected to not only be a direct intimate letter to Titus, but it was also expected to be read to the church. All right. So I left you on the island of Crete so you could complete our work there and appoint elders in each town as I instructed you. All right. So Crete is one of the largest islands in the Mediterranean Sea, and it's just off the coast of Greece. And Crete was extremely notorious, had a very notorious culture. Actually, one of the Greek words for liar is kretizo, which means to be Cretan. So literally, one of the Greek words to describe liar is to be Cretan. So this can kind of let you into the culture of Cretan, all right? So this was there. It was very violent. It was very sexually perverse. Actually, it was considered that many of the men that lived on this island were mercenaries. So you can kind of um, expect the culture that was going on. It was full of sexual perversion. It was full of violence. Um, 
Most of the men were just waiting for the highest bidder, and they would kill on behalf of whatever the highest bidder would pay them. Um, in Homer's Iliad, he actually refers to the island of Crete as the place of a thousand cities. So it, it, was, it had a whole lot of small towns spread across um, these different islands, and yet Titus was called to establish elders in all of these churches because this is just after Paul's successful missionary journey. So Paul has this missionary journey. There's a bunch of Christians now in this very perverse city in this perverse town, and now Titus is tasked to create elders and um, church leaders, pastors, so that way these churches can function, they can create a network so they can operate and expand farther. Because again, the Great Commission is that the all of the nations will be discipled. So that's kind of the, the point of what's going on is they're discipling all of the nations. And these were kind of, um, they had docks all over Crete, all right? So they had all these docks and shipping centers. So it was seen as like the perfect place for the kingdom to expand from. This was the perfect place to come into, create a network of churches, and from these um, different islands, it could expand outward to the entire world as it has. Again, there's more Christians today in this moment than there has ever been in the history of mankind. Because even though the gospel grows slowly, like a mustard seed, like leaven and bread, it continues to expand. That is the goal of the gospel. Again, my opinion is that the Great Commission was not just wishful thinking. The Lord's Prayer was not just wishful thinking, but it was actually God's plan for humanity, all right? Your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. I don't think that's just wishful thinking. I think it's God's plan for humanity. All right, so that's kind of what's going on in Cretan culture. Not the best place to be, all right? Violent, perverse, not very safe for women. It was considered extremely dangerous just to walk the streets of this city. Again, majority of people are mercenaries. Killing is considered a normal way of life for them. It was a very violent area, and this is where Paul starts his churches. This is like normal behavior for Paul, all right? This is where the gospel was breaking out. So the second part is in verse 5, go and appoint elders in each town as I instructed you. So this is kind of the main point um, for the majority of the book, but definitely the four verses that we're doing today is he is called to um, appoint elders. And in this passage, we get the qualifications of elders, right? How many of you guys have heard the saying, um, God doesn't call the qualified, he qualifies the called? Everyone's heard that, right? It's a really cool saying. It's not true, but it's really cool, right? And the reason why I say it's not true, most of the time when we communicate it, it's true in a sense because what we're actually describing is God doesn't qualify or God doesn't call the qualified in our standards, he doesn't call those that are um, extremely intelligent or good communicators. He doesn't call those that have the highest education. In our culture, that's what qualification looks like. So we use this saying to, to talk about how you can be a poor speaker. Take Moses, for instance. He had a lisp or a speech impediment, whatever it might have been, and he was called to go and speak to the greatest world power at the time, all right? Even though in our eyes, we would 
would go, well, he's not really qualified for that. He can't speak. But in God's eyes, he was qualified. Does that make sense? So when we use that term, yeah, it makes sense, but there actually are qualifications to be in leadership in a church and to be called by God and used by God. Makes sense? So over the next verses, the next four or three verses, we're going to go over what those qualifications are, all right? And maybe you're here and you're like, you know, I'm not a church leader. I never will be a church leader. What does it matter to me? And these are the two reasons of why it matters to you, all right? Because a reason, number one, you might not be a church leader, but the qualifications of a church leader are pretty much a mature believer, all right, and you and I should all be mature believers. Again, the goal is not to live on milk, but to advance to meat, right? Because meat is sent by God. Bacon, pork, steak, all of that is from God. Just check out, you know, the vision of the meat coming down from heaven. That's what God designed for you and I. This is a joke. That's completely out of context, but it's okay because it's funny, all right? So we can take verses out of context if it's a joke because it's like really funny. That's called Christian humor. You just don't want to start a cult or something with verses out of context. So that's bad. But if it's a joke, I approve, as long as you let people know it's a joke, right? <laughs> so that's kind of um, one of the reasons why you want to know the qualifications, because even if you're not a church leader, you, chances are you are a form of a leader. Definitely you're leading yourself. You're probably leading your family. You might be leading a business or coworkers, whatever it might be. We're all leading in some aspect of our lives. And we want to make sure that you and I, both of us, are making sure that we are mature believers in the way that we lead. Just because you're not a church leader doesn't mean that you can sit on the back row and live your life however you want and eventually punch your get out of hell free card. You guys know that that's not what scripture teaches by any means. So that's one of the reasons why we want to make sure that we understand the qualifications of leadership. The other reason is because when you go to a church, when you see things that are going on in a um, leadership perspective, you want to make sure that you can see, is this person qualified to lead? And if they're not qualified to lead, maybe you can understand why some things happen in churches. Maybe people are removed from leadership, or maybe people are put into places of leadership. And we want to make sure that we understand the qualifications because we're all part of the body. Make sense? Yeah, you guys are like, yeah, that makes sense. All right, so we're going to go on to verse 6. But again, just to paint the picture, Paul left Titus behind to find and train capable leaders for the Christians of the island of Crete to build stable churches with mature and qualified pastors for the people. Now, again, this had to have been very challenging with the type of people he was working with, you know? Like, that seems like a challenging task. So he starts out with verse 6 and gives us some of the qualifications of what a leader should look like. Again, not our cultural qualifications, but the biblical qualifications. Again, you need to be qualified to lead, but not by culture's qualifications by God. So here we go. First one is an elder must live a blameless life. So elder meaning leader. A leader in a church must live a blameless life. He must be faithful to his wife and his children, must be believers who don't have a reputation of being wild or rebellious. All right, so this is um, what a leader should look like. The first one, live a blameless life. 
life, you might be like, well, that pretty much disqualifies everyone, right? But this is kind of the point is their character should be one that pursues a blameless life, meaning it shouldn't be someone that has a reputation of being arrogant. It shouldn't be someone that has a reputation of talking down to people or belittling people or being angry. It doesn't mean that they've never dealt with a moment of anger in their life. It doesn't mean that they've never dealt with um, you know, lust in their life. What it means is the character of the person as a whole, what this person is known as, their character is not something that we can bring blame to. So when you add someone to a place of leadership, you'd sit down with the rest of the staff and go, okay, is there something about this person's character that we notice to be um, repeated over and over again that is against the biblical standard. Again, everyone's going to fall short. We're all going to make mistakes. We're all going to say things that we shouldn't. But what does the normal way of life for this person look like, right? Because we want to make sure that sin isn't normal, all right? Sin is common, but it's not normal. Cancer is common, but it's not Normal. So we want to make sure that sin isn't normal for us. It's not our normal way of life, right? The second one is he must be faithful to his wife. This one's actually pretty debated. Let me see if I can pull it up in a few different versions. If I can find it real quick, you guys know you can go to the U version and just click on the verse. If I can find verse six, here it is. And you can hit compare, and it shows you like every single translation in English that's ever been done. And it asks me to rate it every time. I've left like some really passionate reviews about the fact that I cannot highlight particular like half of a verse. I've left so many reviews about that and no answer, right? I've given five-star reviews and I get a little frustrated. I'm like, one star until you let me highlight half of a verse. Like it really agitates me. They haven't done it. I want to be able to underline a word. Come on, that's easy. We have AI. Why can't I underline a word? Anyway, all right, so I'll read a few different versions here. ESV, the husband of one wife. Amplified, the husband of one wife. NASB, the husband of one wife, NIV, faithful to his wife. Now, the interesting thing is if you click on the three little dots here, it will pop up and tell you, or must only have one wife, or must be married only once. And then Greek reads, the Greek reads, must be the husband of one wife. Now, normally the way that it's translated in the Greek is a one-woman man. If you've studied this at all, you've probably heard scholars talk about a one-woman man. The reason why this is very debated is because some people argue, this is like a very small minority, some people argue that you have to be married to be a church leader. I think this is like low-key hilarious because what you've just done is disqualified Paul the Apostle and Jesus of Nazareth. <laughs> it's like, I'm sorry, Jesus, but you are unqualified to lead in our church. Like, it's low-key hilarious. That's really funny. Now, the um, other one that's kind of more common in Christian circles is that you can only be married once. So if you happen to have gone through a divorce or maybe your wife died and you remarried, that that disqualifies you for church leadership. Now, I did a message a while back on divorce and remarriage, which again, I've talked about before. I'm not divorced, but it's a really important message for me because I was like one of the first like 
really deep topics that I spent like 300 hours studying because I couldn't find anybody that actually went through the passages and explained it. I just heard people say say things about divorce that sounded good, but they didn't explain it through scripture, right? So if you guys haven't heard it, highly recommend that message. It's on the podcast, probably one of the only ones I'd go back and say, like, make sure you listen to it because I want you to have a good understanding of it. So just to kind of give you a point of what I believe this passage is saying, and I think I stand on the vast majority of scholars, is that the phrase a one woman man means that it's somebody who can be committed to one woman. Meaning if you've gone through a divorce that's approved biblically, or maybe your wife has died and you've remarried, even though you've had a past marriage, you can still be a one woman man. You're not someone that's flirtatious. You're not someone that's always, you know, liking everybody's pick, leaving heart eyes. You know, you're not on Tinder. You're not hanging out with a bunch of random people. You are committed to one woman. All right, and I believe it can be argued that you can be single and still be a one woman type of guy. All right, you can be single and maybe have no, um, you know, desire to get married one day, but you are the type of person that's loyal. You're the type of person that's not going to be sleeping around or always checking everybody out, but you're the type of person that realizes loyalty is important and I'm going to honor my wife. I'm going to be a loyal person. All right, makes sense? Now it goes on. Let me go back again. That's like pretty highly debated. Probably one of the most debated things in Titus, I would say, is that passage. Um, the place where I'm standing is on the vast majority of scholars. Again, they're kind of smaller circles now that debate those types of things. Most people will agree. Again, the divorce thing is much more debated. But as for the single thing, not as much anymore. So an elder must live a blameless life, meaning he has to lead himself well, because living a blameless life is talking about your character, the way that you conduct yourself. He must be faithful to his wife, again, leading himself well, realizing that um, being loyal, um, rejecting your lustful desires is leading yourself well, having control of your um, lustful appetite. And then it says, and his children must be believers who don't have a reputation of being wild or rebellious. Um, William Barclay puts it this way, if I can read a quote. He says, Christianity begins at home. It is no virtue for any man to be engaged in public work and then neglect what's going on in his home. All the church serve in the world will be, not all the church, not all the work in the church will atone for the neglect of a man's own family, meaning that we have to start in our home because when you're faithful in the little, not the family is little, you'll be faithful in the much. So a lot of times people can have trouble with this passage because it's like, well, how is that the leader's fault, what the children do? And it's kind of, if you look at it this way, if you're the owner of a business and you're looking at one of your leaders that are under you and you go, okay, well, this guy is really poor with being over three employees. 
So I don't really want to put him over 23 employees because I'm seeing how he manages what he has in order to give him more. All right, so we start out by first being a good leader over ourselves, and then we eventually enter into being um, a leader over our family. And the way that we lead our family will be a demonstration of how good of a leader we actually are. Are your children being raised in the way of the Lord? If the answer is yes, we can look at you and go, okay, they lead their family well. And if they lead their family well, chances are they're going to lead the church well. But if their family is a mess, if their children are rebellious, if their children are always talking back, never listening, you know, cursing, you know, doing things that are immoral, chances are they didn't raise their children very well. And this can be harsh and it can be hurtful. And again, I'm not, my child's one, so I can't even talk too much about this. But the point is, this is what scripture is saying, is the way that we lead our family is a reflection of what type of leader we actually are. Because as a church leader, we have to be loving and compassionate, but we also have to be stern and bringing correction. So we talked about this last week in the whole Jeremiah 29, 11, and how we love to talk about things that build us up. But many times, we're not too big of a fan of things that might bring us down for a moment in order to bring us up. And throughout scripture, there's actually a lot of stuff in Paul's different epistles and other places in the New Testament where it talks about church correction. And the reason why there's church correction, as Paul would put it, is because we want to make sure that they're turned from the fires of hell and pointed towards growth. All right, we want to make sure that they're pointed towards growth. And many times in our parenting style, Hopefully no one gets offended, right? Bless her, those are not offended. Many times in our parenting style, I've noticed that we choose our child's happiness over our child's success. How many of you guys know that as a parent, your task is to raise a successful adult? That's like our task as a parent, not successful in the world standard, but again, successful in the biblical standard, your job as a parent is to raise your child to be a successful adult. Your job is actually not to raise a child that's always happy. And I've noticed at times because we have a misconception of love, because we've overemphasized happiness in Jeremiah 29, 11, we've actually neglected passages of correction. And what we do is we're so afraid to ever correct our children because we're so afraid of them not being happy. I want to make sure that they feel loved and we interpret love to mean happiness instead of interpreting love to be success. As a parent, my responsibility, my job, and my goal is to make sure that my child is not just happy every single moment. How many of you guys know we want happy kids, right? We love our children with all of our heart, and we want to make sure that they enjoy life to the fullest. Right, John? Yes. I don't know why he's laughing. I am funny, but I wasn't trying to be funny right there. Um, but we want to make sure that they are corrected as well. We want to make sure that we bring correction to our children. Amen. Um, Matthew Henry says, how unfit are those to govern a church who cannot govern themselves or their own family? So we need to be those that have 
true governing responsibilities, realizing the responsibility that we have to raise our children. It's a big responsibility, right? I know most people, if you ask parents, like, what's the most important thing to you? They'll say, my children are the most important thing to me. And I find that many times we do no work to make sure that we are raising our children well. Like, we go into parenting and correction and discipline like, hey, let's just, like, see what happens, you know? Like, hey, honey, you just try your thing. I'll try my thing. Like, today, I'm going to try the corner. Tomorrow, I'm going to spank them and see what happens. And then the next day, let's just love on them and just see what happens. Like, there's no plan. There's no unity. You've never even read a parenting book, and you're like, but parenting is the most important thing to me. How many of you guys would want a doctor that goes, you know what, being a doctor is the most important thing to me, but I don't really care to learn from other people. I'd rather just figure it out myself. How many of you are like, that's the doctor I want to go to? I want him to just learn and just be open because he loves me. He's going to do everything right the first time, right? You know, a smart person learns from their own mistakes, but a wise person learns from somebody else's mistakes. And we want to make sure, again, being a parent, we're walking in wisdom with the Lord, and there's not one formula to raise a kid. But Scripture talks about tuning our ears to wisdom so we can learn different principles that have worked well for other people, that they have raised children well so we can learn these principles. We can come back and we can sit down with our spouse and we can create a plan. You should have a plan with your spouse on how to discipline. If you don't have a plan, you're not going to achieve your goal. All right? How many of you guys know what the definition of insanity is? Doing the same thing over and over and hoping for a different result. This is how many of you raise your children. You do the same thing over and over, and you hope for a different result. All right? So we want to make sure that we're tuning our ears to wisdom We're concentrating on understanding. So we're reading Keep Your Love On by Danny Silk. We're sitting down and we're talking with our spouse. Again, we don't want to just extract a formula. I'm going to raise my kids just like Danny Silk. But we can um, learn some different principles and sit down and go, okay, sweetie, what do you think is the best thing that we can implement for Jonah, for Tim, for little baby Clay. You know, what's the best thing that we can do for this child that is so strong and so passionate and talks so loudly? You know, what can we do for baby Clay? Because you need to make sure that you have the wisdom of the Holy Spirit to raise children like that. Clay is our um, most recent elder added to the team, right? Hey, Clay. Glad you're able to make it. Um, So yes, we want to make sure that we're walking in wisdom. So books that I'd recommend, Keep Your Love On by Danny Silk. Um, You can listen to their Kylo podcast. They also have a um, Coffee Kids and Crazy podcast, a book that I just read by um, Doug Wilson, Why Kids Matter, I believe it was called. All of these are great keys. And just to be clear, I'm not saying you have to raise your kids just like they say. Is that clear? but we can learn principles to make sure it's a reflection of the fact that parenting is important to me. It is the greatest impact that you will ever make as a human being. Do you realize that? Parenting is the greatest impact you will ever make as a human being. Please do not go into it like, well, let's just see what happens. I think God will just tell me in the moment. 
I'm, I'm going to enter into being a doctor, and I think God's just going to tell me what to do. All right, we want to make sure that we're tuning our ears to wisdom, creating a plan with our spouse that we're walking through in unity because we're going to create a lasting legacy. The, the parenting style that you choose will be something that influences your child for the rest of their lives and will influence the way that they parent. So we want to make sure it's a reflection of biblical standards and not cultural standards because biblical standards says that love is not just all about happiness. Love isn't just about your kid being happy all the time. It's about your four-year-old, your five-year-old, your six-year-old walking in the ways of the Lord. Last thing I'll say on parenting in one of the last books I just read, Doug Wilson talks about how you never correct for yourself. I never discipline because I'm frustrated because my kid's annoying me. I correct, I discipline because I want him to be the best version of himself. Oh, but I'm so sorry you did that. This is your consequence. I'm sorry, but I want you to be the best version of yourself. I don't want you to just be happy all the time. The funny thing is I do actually have conversations like that with my one-year-old. And he looks back and goes, huh? <laughs> huh? And he like turns his head sideways. And I'm like, yeah, I'm really sorry, bud, but this is your consequence. Um, he hasn't really learned it yet, but I'm still practicing, you know, putting the things in, in place. Because again, I want to learn from other people. I don't want to just have to figure it out all myself, all right? Moving on to the next passage. Oh, actually, I'll go ahead and read 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 4, 5, and 12, just to kind of show you that this is a common thing that Paul repeats in his letter to Timothy when he's over the church at Ephesus. It's just kind of a common principle. He must manage his own family well, having children who respect and obey him. For if a man cannot manage his own household, how can he take care of God's church? A deacon must be faithful to his wife. He must manage his children and his household well, again, because the way that you lead yourself, the way that you lead your family is a reflection of what type of leader you are, and we want to lead well. So we want to make sure if we're single that we're living a blameless life, because right now we're just leading ourselves. If we're in a marriage, if we have children, now we're leading more than just, of our, just ourselves. So the way that we lead our children is a reflection of what type of leader we are. Verse 7 of Titus, making gains, here we go. A church leader is a manager of God's household, so he must live a blameless life again. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered. He must not be a heavy drinker, violent, or dishonest with money. All right, so again, these are all of the qualifications of leadership. So there are qualifications. They just might not be what you and I would consider them to be. It's not all about education. It's not all about talent. It's about the way that you conduct your life. This is what a mature believer looks like, and this is what you and I should aspire to be like. All right, so I thought we could kind of just go through each one. I'd read the Greek word and kind of explain what it means. I'm not going to put the Greek words on the screen. That way you don't know how badly I'm butchering the pronunciation. I thought that was a really good plan. All right, because whatever I say, you're going to be like, yeah, that sounds really smart, you know? And it's like, it's, I can't even pronounce the word. All right, so we're going to start with arrogant, which is the Greek word athathiatis. Sounds good, right? All right. So it literally means to please yourself. 
All right, that word arrogant in the Greek literally just means to please yourself. You're all about making yourself happy. Remember, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. So as a biblical standard, we're meant to walk in humility. And what it means is we put the people around us in front of us. We go, how can I honor you? How can I help you? How can I hold the door open for you? How can I make your life just a little bit better? Because it's not all about me. R.C. Trench said that such a man is like this. He stubbornly maintains his own opinion or asserts his own rights while he is reckless of the rights and opinions and interests of others. So we don't want to be someone that's always talking over everybody, who's always um, you know, forcing our own opinion, but we want to be someone who practices humility, who listens to people well because we care about people. That's what this you know, word arrogance is describing, someone who is all about themselves. Newsflash majority of all of us are all about ourselves. This is a challenging thing because many of us, from the moment of birth, were raised for it to be about me. Mine, 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 mine. So we have to make sure that we're establishing this new form of kingdom where people come before ourselves. Doesn't mean that we think we're worthless or we think that we're less than. We realize the amazing person we are but we realize that we want to put other people first because we love people. All right, next one, not quick-tempered. The ancient word here used is orgalios. Orgalios, not going to spell that for you because I know that's so wrong. Um, orgalios, all right, <laughs> is the word that we're talking about. And the interesting thing about this, I read a bunch of scholars on this, um, Barclay, um, David Guzek, a lot of people, and they all argue for the fact that um, this quick-tempered is not just someone that gets upset and like has an outburst of anger, but it's almost someone that lives a bitter life that just has this underlining constant form of anger. Like they just get frustrated easily. So it is someone that's quick-tempered, but it's someone that's quick-tempered all the time. It's not just like they have one moment of an outburst, but it's like they're, they're in traffic and they're upset. They go to the store and, and they're upset. And it's normally because they're angry. And why do we get angry? Yeah. So the reason why we're angry, anger says, I'm not getting what I want. So a quick-tempered person is someone that hates that they're not getting what they want. So when they're in traffic and someone pulls, off, pulls out in front of them, that's not what they want. So all of a sudden, it completely changes their attitude, completely changes their mood, because I'm not getting what I want. And then they go to the store, and like the line's really long, and the cashier's like telling the person in front of them their life story, and what's happening? I'm not getting what I want. I want to go home and, and four minutes early, because that's what I want. You know, and we get frustrated, we get angry. So what we do is we always have this temper that's flaring up and down, up and down, whether we're at the grocery store or at work, we find ourselves getting frustrated 
constantly, and that's what we use. We like to use the word frustrated because that is so classy. You know, to say that you're angry is not sophisticated, and we're very sophisticated people, so we like to say, I'm just frustrated because frustration says that the problem is out there with the coworker. The problem is at this cashier who talks way too much. Like, they're annoying, and they're frustrating me, and I'm just a classy, frustrated person. And if the rest of the world could get it together, I wouldn't be frustrated. If my life was perfect and everyone gave me exactly what I want, I wouldn't be frustrated, right? We wouldn't deal with frustration if we just got what we wanted. And Paul says that this isn't the type of person that you should look for in a leader because it's not just about getting what you want. It's about putting people in front of you because we want to make sure that we're leading successful people, all right? And I'm going to challenge you guys. We did this on our um, series on anger. If you find yourself getting frustrated, I challenge you in the moment to go, I'm not getting what I want. I promise you it will change your perspective because what you do is many of us live our lives as a bratty adult, but once you realize you're living your life as a bratty adult, it helps you change your perspective. When you realize I'm throwing a temper tantrum because I'm not getting what I want, there's something inside of us that goes, you know, I really want to be more mature than this. But remember, the nature of deception is that you don't know that you're deceived, all right? So you, many of us, you and I, were deceived into being temper tantrum little baby adults, but we don't know it. So once we realize that we're throwing temper tantrums every single time we don't get what we want, when we realize, hey, I'm being a baby because I'm not getting what I want, it helps us realize, you know, I need to embrace maturity. I, I discipline my toddler when they throw a temper tantrum for not getting what they want, maybe I should realize I need to be a successful adult too. And when someone cuts me off, when the line's a little long at the grocery store, when my Amazon package gets lost and I have to enter into the gates of hell right there in Wildwood, Florida, and I have to wait for 45 minutes, you know what? I'm not getting what I want. I'm walking through the valley of the shadow of death into the Wildwood Post Office, and his rod and his staff is comforting me as I go in there. I have to realize I'm not going to get angry. I'm not going to get frustrated, even though I'm not getting what I want. And nine out of 10 times when I'm sitting there for 45 minutes, I don't know how it happens, but Matt Rogers is right there next to me every time. It's hilarious. That poor guy is at the post office just as much as I am. I'm like, you, you know, they didn't give you your package? No. And he's always smiling. And I'm like, if Matt Rogers can be excited and talk to 45 minutes to the guy next to him in line, so can I. You know, so can I. And I just wanted to be just like Matt Rogers. So last week when I sat there for 45 minutes, I was, had a smile on my face because of Matt Rogers. So just remember, even when you're not getting what you want, I can still act like a mature adult. When my package gets lost, when I don't get the raise, when I didn't get enough sleep, right? We, we like to go, I didn't get enough sleep, so I'm going to behave like a toddler today. Hey, no, actually, you're a mature adult. And even though you didn't get enough sleep, you still have to behave. Even though someone cut in front of you, you're a mature adult, you still have to behave, all right? This is part of maturity, even though you didn't get what you want. So 
challenge you guys to say it out loud. I say it out loud all the time. I was in the Wildwood Post Office. I'm not getting what I want. I'm not getting what I want. You know, it kind of changed my perspective. You know, I'm looking at Matt with the smile on his face. I'm like, I can do this. So you guys can do it too. All right. Next part after we did arrogance, we did not quick-tempered. The next one is he must not be a heavy drinker. All right, this disqualifies a few of you guys. I know it. All right, must not be a heavy drinker. The word is, the word is, <laughs> the word is perinosis. All right, that's the the Greek word is perinosis, which literally means given to overindulgence. So most scholars will argue for the fact that it's actually not just talking about wine, but it can be talking about things like marijuana or medical drugs, you know, prescription drugs. Is We're not meant to overindulge, right? We're meant to be people of moderation, right? Because there's a lot of different... Um, instances in scripture where people drink wine, but it's very clear that those that are drunk with alcohol step over a line and enter into sin. So we want to be those that live in moderation. Again, a few weeks ago, we did communion and we had, you know, wine up here. We don't think it's a sin to drink occasionally or something like that, but that's up to your conviction. So scripture is very clear, all right? Scripture is very clear that if there are people that view drinking alcohol as sinful, it is sinful for you to try to convince them otherwise, all right? So if they think something is wrong, you need to be a mature believer and allow them to trust their own convictions, because it is an honoring thing for you to trust your convictions. This principle can overflow into other areas in your life. Maybe you believe that something is fine, you know, God approves of it, but you know someone else doesn't. You should be honoring of their convictions and not do it in front of them. You know, not try to convince them otherwise, because the Bible talks about if we believe something is wrong, and this is crazy, all right? If we believe something is wrong that really isn't, but we believe it's wrong in our heart and we do it anyway, that's sinful. Isn't that crazy? And it's because we have to make sure that we're trusting our convictions. We shouldn't just do what everyone else does, but we should do what we believe that the Holy Spirit is leading us into. All right, so again, you know, like I mentioned, we had wine for communion, but yet I've been in circumstances where there's been people trying to argue for the fact that, oh, you know, you should drink, you should try wine, you should try this. There's nothing wrong with it. And I've been there, and I'm like, oh my gosh, like this is sinful in this moment. Because we're trying to pull people out of their convictions, and we need to make sure that we're honoring of convictions. All right, so that doesn't mean that we do it in people's faces, or if someone thinks something is wrong, you know, maybe you can smoke a cigar like R.C. Sproul, but someone else thinks that that's extremely sinful. You should be honoring of that, and that should be something that's done in your home or in intimate settings, whatever it might be. As Albert Leving says, if you can sit down with a steak or a glass of wine, whatever, whatever it might be, and go, to you be the glory, God. To you be the glory. In that moment, if you can bring all the glory to God, then chances are in your heart there's nothing wrong with it. Does that make sense? Of course, we need to make sure we bring it back to Scripture. I've seen random YouTube videos where people are trying to say that, you know, their cocaine habit is honoring to God. All right, so we want to make sure that's a reflection of Scripture as well, but there are some gray areas in Scripture because the Scripture doesn't get into every single detail. So in those gray areas are where we sit down with Scripture and go, God, am I honoring you in this moment? 
Am I honoring you in this moment? You guys remember that story that I talked about? I think it was uh, R.C. Sproul with the cigar and the other guy with the, with the heavy stomach. Yeah, that was crazy. I don't remember the whole thing, so I can't tell the story again, but it was funny. All right. So, must not be a heavy drinker again. This is describing the character of the man. Um, oh, yeah, so also this Greek word. So a lot of times in Jewish culture, they would use this for people that were doing things if I can say stupid, that we're doing stupid things even when they were sober. So you know when someone does something ridiculous and you're like, are you drunk? Like, it's kind of funny. It's like, are you drunk? Because you're really ridiculous. Like, you don't make any sense. Like, they would use this same phrasing to describe people like that. So the point that he's trying to get across is, do not bring people into leadership even if they're sober, when they make decisions like they're drunk, <laughs> all right? So we want to make sure that the people that we bring into leadership, again, mature believers, have a sound mind and make good decisions, all right? They should make good decisions over themselves, and they should make good decisions in their family, and they should make good decisions in their church, all right? So this is also describing people, even if they don't drink, but they just act like they drink because they're just a ridiculous person, all right? So we want to make sure that we make wise decisions. We make sober decisions, all right? Last one, JK, two more. Violence is the next one. Um, this is a quote, again, by William Barclay. It says, the Greeks themselves widened the meaning of this word to include not only violence in action, but also violence in speech. The word came to mean one who browbeats. Anyone know what that means? I had to Google it. I was like, William, I'm not following you. I'm way too young for this. Browbeats just means to intimidate someone to intimidate his fellow men, and it may well be that some should translate it here. So again, the action of violence can be that in speech, because most likely, I don't know who you guys hang out with. I don't know many like violent people that are just going to punch you or hit you, although I hang out with some really <laughs> cool people. All right, but I have met a few people that are violent in speech, Again, there might be moments of lapsed judgment, moments where we fall short, but we're not looking for someone that lives a life of that this is their character, that they're violent in speech, they're talking people down, they're belittling people. This isn't a type of lifestyle that we should be reflecting as mature believers. And the last one, oh man, um, here we go. Asiachokiedis. <laughs> that sounded really good. I don't even know how else to say it. This is a one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. This is like a 14-letter word. That's a hard one, guys. All right. All right. So it means to be dishonest with money. It describes a man who does not care how he makes money so as long as he makes it. Now you can imagine being on the island of Crete, being surrounded by mercenaries. There were many people that didn't mind how they made money just as long as they made it. How many of you guys know money isn't the root of all evil? It's the love of money that's the root of all evil. And they say, they say, if you want to know if you love money, just ask yourself what you're willing to do for it because you're willing to do anything for the things that you love. And there's some of us that are willing to do anything, to go to any extent, to cross any moral boundary, to get this 
excess of money. You know, we'd be willing to do just about anything. And these are the people that Paul is talking about, those that are willing to cross over their moral lines, to do things that they never should, but they're willing to do it to receive money, even if it's disgraceful. Polybius, who's an ancient um, theologian or an ancient historian, said, they desire wealth second to none. He's talking about the island of Crete. They desire wealth second to none, making gain in disgraceful ways. Among the Cretans, no gain is counted as disgraceful. This is what historians were writing about this place. Like this was a place known for immorality. And again, Paul's making sure that the people that you bring into leadership, wise believers, you know, um, mature believers, should not be willing to do anything for money. Moral standards, you know, should be should be far above for their gain for wealth. We want to make sure that we realize money is not everything. Money is not evil, but the love of it is. So I'm going to challenge you to ask yourself: How far are you willing to go? to obtain $50 million, what would you be willing to do? You know, many of us would be willing to go very far. And I'm not saying, you know, maybe you're here and you're like, hey, I'd cut off my arm for 50 million. You know, that's not necessarily sinful. It's a little bit weird, but it would be more sinful. It would be more sinful to be willing to hurt someone or to go against the standards of morality in scripture, right? I guess you could argue that cutting off your arm would be sinful, but I was just kind of making a point that morality is the standard that they're making. What do you, what do you guys think? Sinful? Jeremy, what do you think? Cutting off your arm? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. I didn't really think about it much. I was just kind of making a point there that I was trying to get across, but... All right, don't cut off your arm either if someone offers you $50 million. That would be a really interesting circumstance if someone walked up to you and was like, hey, I want your arm, $50 million, you know? It's like, well, what do you need it for? All right, so verse 8, only two more verses, and we're going to wrap up. You guys talk about that at lunch, you know, bring your cases to why you think you could cut off your arm, bring your case to why you think you shouldn't. These are the type of conversations you should have at lunch. Ask your server as well what they think. All right, verse 8, rather he must enjoy having guests in his home. He must love what is good. He must live wisely and be just. He must live a devout and disciplined life. Again, I hope it's clear. Leaders should not just be chosen at random, all right? Meaning, if you are really talented, if you're a great singer, if you have a really good education, if you're really creative, if you're really good at leading people, that does not qualify you for leadership. If you are not loyal to your wife, if you're not good at raising your children, you're disqualified for leadership. And I know that that might sound offensive to you, but you see, the point is love isn't all about happiness. It's also about living an honorable life because we're just like when you parent, the way that you live your life, whether you mean to or not, your kids are going to be a reflection of the way that you live. Whether you like that or not, that's what it's going to be like. And when you are a leader, many times people will be a reflection of the way that they've been led. 
And that's why it's so important that it's not just a qualified person that's gone to seminary, that's a very gifted and talented communicator. It's not someone that has an amazing voice or that can play all the instruments. It's someone that meets the biblical qualifications of leadership. So when we say the saying, God doesn't call the qualified, he qualifies the called, you know, we're meaning it in the right instances. We're meaning that you don't have to have all the schooling, you don't have to have the best voice, but the saying is wrong. God is calling qualified people, but he's calling qualified people to his standard. His standard for qualification is someone that lives a blameless life, someone that's loyal, someone that practices humility, that's raising his family well. This is the biblical qualification for leadership. And I'm taking a long time. I must have just been really having fun. All right, just to be clear, this isn't a super rigid list that requires perfection in every instance. For instance, I one time went to one of um, my elders' homes, not my, but one of the elders in the church's homes, and I knocked on their door. I don't remember what I was doing, but I'm sure I was doing the Lord's work, probably feeding the poor or helping the needy, and I was knocking on this elder's door, and his truck was there, and there was no answer. And I was like, you know, what's going on? Because they're called to always be hospitable in every circumstance. And I'm knocking on the door, the light's on, and I thought, what, what's going on here? You know, I continued to knock on the door. The person wouldn't answer. The pastor of the church, you know, out there in the cold, trying to feed the needy, help the orphans and the widows, and the door couldn't even be open to me. And I, I had to leave that day without being welcomed <laughs> into their home. So, it's not that they require perfection, because in this moment, there's a great lapse of judgment on this particular elder, and I'm not going to say their name because I don't want to shame them. Their initials are JC. Um, but they didn't let me in. Now, later on, um, you know, he tried to say he didn't know who it was and wondering why someone was knocking on the door, and I said, well, you're called to hospitality, John, you know? Like, that's what you're called for is hospitality, and they didn't let me in, all right? So at that point, John didn't practice hospitality, okay? But it's not a rigid list that requires perfection at all times, okay? Because the point is, John is pretty hospitable at most times, okay? That's kind of what his character is, is he's a hospitable person, even though he rejected me in that moment, all right? And yes, we prayed for him. We got everyone together. So we're hoping he's on the up and up at this time, but we're not too sure what was going on then. So that's kind of the point is we can't expect perfection from everyone at every single moment. And this is why, you know, pastors might be removed from leadership or maybe they're brought back in leadership or given, you know, there's so many different ways to handle different um, moral failures. And that's a whole nother topic for a different day. But we just want to make sure that we're valuing scripture. And that point in scripture, just so you know, where it says um, they must enjoy having guests in their home, what they're actually referring to is an ancient culture. It was very expensive to stay in inns. They were actually dirty and really immoral places. Like most inns and places that you could go and stay in in ancient culture were very sexually perverse. So when Christians traveled, it was considered normal Christian culture for you to open up your home to different Christians. And they would come and they would stay for a day or two. And this was considered a really powerful moment because what would happen that day 
you know, New Testament wasn't canonized yet. So you would share these different New Testament writings that you got to hear. You know, oh, I have the letter that Paul wrote to Titus. Oh, I have, I have the letter that he wrote to the church of Ephesians. And you kind of share the different things. There's a moment where you would really build each other up. And it was an exciting time to meet these different Christians that were traveling around the world. And that's what Paul is talking about right now is you want to make sure that there's people that are willing to open up their home to be generous to those that are traveling around. So that's what he's talking about in this passage. Now, the way that we can apply it in our 21st century culture is not that you have to let me in every time I randomly show up at your door, even if you don't know it's me. You know, you don't have to do that. But the point is, we want to make sure that we're generous people that are opening up our homes, um, having friendship with others, sitting down, entering into friendship, entering into discipleship. We don't want to be those that are all about me, that enter into seclusion, because part of the gospel is joining together with those that are around us, building disciples, building friendship. We want to make sure that that's something that each and every one of you practice, right? I would recommend a goal every two weeks, we have someone over at our house. Every three weeks, if it's too much, you know, start with an achievable goal. Every two weeks, we're going to have one couple over at our house. We're going to sit down, spend time with them, you know, eat with them, whatever it might be. Set a goal because this is part of the way that we share the gospel, part of the way that we disciples entering into friendship, right? Sound good? No one upset? Good. All right, last verse, verse 9. He must have a strong belief in the trustworthy message he was taught. Then he will be able to encourage others with wholesome teaching and show those who oppose it when they are wrong. So again, another qualification for a mature believer and for a leader in the church is you have to have a strong belief in the gospel. You have to have a strong belief in the message that you were taught and the message that you received, meaning that if you're a leader, if you're a mature believer, you should have a disciplined study of the scripture. You should know doctrine. You should know theology. It's so important because when people come into your church, when you sit down with people in your home and they ask you questions, you have to make sure you're able to speak truth. And if you're one of the people that only hear the Bible whenever you come to church on Sunday, or maybe you've only heard expository teachings and things that build you up and make you excited, you're going to be filled with all this love, which is great, but you're not going to know any truth. And when people come with serious and difficult questions, you're not going to be able to bring any true help to them. It is your responsibility to study the scriptures. It's your responsibility to understand theology and to understand doctrine. It's a responsibility that you have. And I know some of us, you know, I'm not really interested in that stuff. Like, I love Jesus and I worship him. And that's amazing. Remember, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. But make sure you're loving him with your mind, too. If you only love him with your mind, make sure you're loving him with your heart too. We've got to be well-rounded believers because there's those out there that need to meet a loving God and there's people out there that also need to receive truth, okay? You don't come to the gospel so that you can stop feeling depressed. You come to the gospel because it's true, 
all right? It's not about not feeling depressed, even though that will most likely happen for you. It's not about getting over sadness or finding purpose. All of that stuff is true, and it's amazing, and that's part of the gospel. That's not the selling point, all right? The reason why we're Christians is because the gospel story of Jesus of Nazareth is true, The Son of God came to earth, became the Son of Man, and paid the ultimate price for you. All right, the penalty of sin, you might not realize this, maybe you think you're a good person, but the penalty of sin is death. Even if you feel like you're a good person, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the creator of you, God the creator made it so that the penalty of sin is death, meaning that you are on death row until you receive the gospel message. All right, that's the good news is you get to step out of death when we don't deserve it. Jesus loved you so much that he was willing to go, you know what? For Jamie, for Eric, for Chris, I'm willing to step in and pay the ultimate price for you. I'm sinless, I'm blameless, I did nothing wrong, but I'm willing to die for you because I want you to go free. I'm willing to pay the ultimate price to be beaten, to be tortured, to be whipped, to be hung, hanged on a cross. There you go, mom. Hanged on a cross in a little diaper, according to our passion play, for, the, for, the, for you. That's what Jesus was willing to do. We got to make sure that we don't accept a gospel message that's all about being happy. Happiness is great. Please don't misunderstand me. Jesus is so loving and so compassionate, but that's not why we're Christians. We're Christians because it's true. All right. John Maximovich, who is an early church father, said there is not need for fancy words, but strong minds of skill in the scripture and powerful thoughts. That's what you and I are called to do as believers. We need to study this word well. Luther, who you guys know is one of my favorites, says, a preacher must both be a soldier and a shepherd. He must nourish and defend and teach. He must have teeth in his mouth and be able to bite, but also fight. Because again, the point is, you don't come to church just to get lifted up. You come to church to be corrected as well. We come to church to sit down and go, okay, God, am I leading myself well? Am I living a blameless life? Is my character blameless? Of course, we fall short, we stumble, but is our character blameless? Is there something that we're doing that needs to be corrected? Is my parenting blameless? Am I making a plan with my spouse? Am I devoting, tuning my ears to wisdom? Am I realizing the responsibility that I'm carrying? Or am I just kind of going about it and see what happens and hope things turn out the best because I really love them, you know? We want to make sure that we're looking deeply into our hearts. You're going, God, what can I do better? Because I want to honor you well. I want to honor you well with the way that I live my life, life, the way that I lead myself, the way that I lead my family, and the way that I lead the people around me. I want you to be a successful adult, and I want you to raise successful adults. And I want that because I believe that's what the scriptures teach. All right, so I'm going to pray for you guys. 
and we're going to go eat a lot of food, all right? Not together, though. Don't follow us, all right? We'll have hospitality another day, all right? So, God, we just thank you for the honor and privilege to know you deeper. I ask that you would reveal yourself through your word. And I ask that this week, tonight, and tomorrow, God, would you please stir within our heart to open your word? Please stir within our heart to open your word. Let us know you, come closer to you, and be a reflection of you. Help us to actually be mature believers. If you enjoyed this podcast, we encourage you to like and subscribe for more from your Reclaim Church family. God bless, and we hope that you have an amazing week.